0: Good morning all. Great to see you today. Welcome. Growing you is a great, great thing. Now listen, we know why people don't read the Bible. Even Christian people aren't reading the Bible. It's, it's amazing because the Bible is the Word of God. It is the will of God. People say, what is God's will for my life? It's the, it's the words of God. That's His will. And the reason people don't read the Bible is because they don't understand the Bible. So there's, a, there's some barriers there. And so what we're trying to do with Growing You, 30,000-foot view, is we want to give you an overview of the Scripture, unpack it book by book, so that you can develop a working knowledge of the Scripture. We're going to go through the whole Bible with Growing You. We've been studying the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, and in two weeks we're starting the New Testament. So uh, this will be a great opportunity to engage the Gospels and I hope that you will take the time to do it. 10 o'clock, 11.15 over in the sanctuary. Skip Heitzig does a great job teaching. He's the senior leader of, of uh, Calvary Chapel in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He's a great teacher and leader. And, and it makes a lot of sense. So I hope you'll check it out. It should be fun. Well, we are uh, continuing our series on marriage and family today. We're, we, uh, we do have a PG-13 uh, message this morning. So thanks for being heads up about that. And today we want to talk about sex after marriage. We need to go back to the book of Genesis because we're considering original intent, God's original design for marriage and for our relationships in marriage. And so uh, this important subject of sex is one that uh, I look forward to talking about. I was asked to do a youth uh, keynote uh, several years ago, and one of my assignments was to talk to the teenagers about sex. And that night, I broke a record at that particular camp, and I I preached on sex for two hours and 24 minutes. The next day, they gave me the t-shirt, two hours and 24 minutes. I I thought about getting it framed, you know, and hanging it up on a wall. All that to say that I've got a lot to say about this subject. (laughs) The good news for you all is I only have about 25 minutes right now, so uh, I have hours and hours more stuff that I could share, but this is all I can do for now. So we're going to go back to God's original design, to Genesis chapter 2. If you'll turn there, uh, we're going to read verses 18 to 25. Our custom is to stand to hear God's word. If you're able, would you please do that? Beginning at verse 18. And the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, Now, that's what I'm talking about. (laughs) This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Now, verse 24, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Now, let's really lean into verse 25. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. No shame. May God inspires today through his word. You may be seated. Thanks so much. I need to confess that the Church of Jesus Christ historically has made some mistakes with regard to the issue of sexuality. Uh, we can trace back to the Middle Ages a process that developed back in those days that, that lend the church to the position that sexuality in the Garden of Eden, was a contributing factor to original sin. Adam and Eve fell in the garden because of sexuality. Now this we we speculate, we suspect that the sensuality of the Roman Empire in the first 3 centuries of the church combined with with uh, some of the medieval artistic renderings of Adam and Eve in the garden, some of the paintings you've seen from that period of history, you know, with their nakedness and then the 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 lust of the leadership of the church themselves probably contributed to by a forced celibacy of the priesthood, which I've always thought was a bad idea. But but all of that in combination, it's all left to speculation. But what we do know for sure is that the church came to this notion that sexuality became a contributing factor, maybe a significant contributing factor to the original sin, the fall of man. And let me just say that I disagree with that completely. I think that's wrong, 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 wrong. The Bible's pretty clear with regard to why Adam and Eve sinned. They were tempted. They were tempted with knowledge and with pride and the opportunity to become like God. You'll not die, the devil said. You'll have understanding and you'll be wise and you'll be like God. And that was the temptation, the temptation of pride and ego. So... To pin the fall of man on the subject of sex is just a wrong idea. Now, let me just then say, in fact, that I believe the greatest sex ever experienced in all of human history was enjoyed by Adam and Eve prior to the fall. The best ever. No obstacles of pride? Think about it. No guilt, no jealousy, sin, unforgiveness, bitterness, fear, shame, perversion, wicked, adultery. None of that stuff was there. So their sexuality was uninhibited, it was unhindered, it was unfettered, it was joyful, it was liberated, it was exuberant, it was enthusiastic. Their sex was absolutely pure. So therefore, let me just remind you, Hugh Hefner and Playboy did not invent sex. God invented sex. It was God's idea. And let me just add that, in my opinion, he was in a pretty nifty mood that day. I mean, really, what a great, great idea. Fabulous idea. And not only did God invent sex, but then he commands us to participate in it. When he tells Adam and Eve, now be fruitful and multiply. So here it is. It's good. So get busy and have a good time. And that's God's design. But today, perhaps much like the latter stages of the Roman Empire, just prior to their implosion, our own views of sex, I think, are suffering dramatically. Let me try to give some definition to what I'm describing. There are two equal and opposite wrong definitions of sexuality in our world today. They are are on the extreme opposites of one another, and they are wrong. Let me try to define those two things. One is the definition that the world gives us now about human sexuality. And this is what the world says in general. That sex is so good, it is so good, so captivating, so inebriating, that you you must not put any restraints on it whatsoever. Don't insert God in the middle of sexuality because it's so good, so great, so wonderful that we must not restrict it, restrain it, tamper with it in any way. It It should find full expression in any expression that you desire anytime you want to. Otherwise, you become repressed or warped or joyless. Now, that's the world's opinion of this. Therefore, we must choose God or sex, and we choose sex. In today's worldview, for most of the world now, God is sex, and sex is God. We actually pin uh, labels, titles, onto particular people in, in history, in our own culture. We have these women, uh, and let me just try to name their names, and we have a, we have a title that we give them, and see if you can remember what it is. It, it's women like Marilyn Monroe, Raquel Welsh, Madonna, Britney Spears, Beyonce, Kate Upton. Have I covered all the generations there? And the, and the term that we give to these women is what? They're a sex goddess. A sex goddess. And, and listen, that's just not just a, a vernacular. We really mean that in the world. We mean that these become idols of worship, icons of devotion. God is sex and sex is God. And sex is so good, we dare not tamper with it. So at all costs, we must keep God away from our sex lives. Now, that's one, that's one worldview, and, I, and it couldn't be more wrong, is, but, it, but it's the way the world tends to operate right now. On the other extreme of this is an equal and opposite error in our definition of, of authentic sexuality, and that comes from the church the historic church of Jesus Christ. And we might call this a hyper-spiritualized or puritanic uh, kind of worldview or approach within the church that's emerged. And here's how it works. Sex is so bad. Sex is so bad that we've got to keep it away from God. <laughs> it, it, it's a necessary evil. I mean, we get it. We have to, we have to do it for procreation, And some of us admit that we actually enjoy it, but we know God's not pleased with this. God is so holy, and sex is so bad and yet captivating, therefore we deny that sex is important in our lives. And so we have this warped and psychotic view of sex that that has emanated from, from the church traditions and therefore from from our culture for many, many years. The extreme example of this that I know about is a group of, of uh, people called Shakers. And there's a little settlement in central Kentucky called Shaker Town. It's still there. Now, the Shakers came along in the 18th century, and they were very pious, very devout people. They had very high standards, morals, and all of that. But they had this repressed notion of sexuality that came out of this tradition of the church saying that sex is really bad, and, you know, and we put up with it because we have to. And in in their worldview, they become they became wound up so tight that they began to separate themselves, men and women. You can go to Shaker Town. the the buildings are still there. Their craftsmanship was extreme. The buildings are still in great shape from a hundred years ago, and 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 more. And so and so the Shakers the Shakers at one point build a sanctuary that they would worship in. But they put in the in the in the Benches, the pews, right in the center of the church, they built little barriers right in the middle of the pews. And so the women sat on one side of the church, and then the barrier, and the men sat on the other side of the church. So that men and women never came into physical contact. Now, these folks were called shakers because when they would get in the spirit and they would worship, they would begin to shake. And people noticed they were shakers, so they called them shakers. They were the first cousins to the Quakers. <laughs> Because the Quakers in the early days, they would experience God and they would quake. And so the Quakers were quaking and the Shakers were shaking. There's a whole lot of shaking going on. And so they were called Shakers. And, and, but they got all uptight about their sexuality. And eventually, watch this, they built separate dorms. Because even the married folks, they didn't want living in the same room. So you had a men's dormitory and a women's dormitory. How many of you can predict what happened to the Shakers? There are no more Shakers there is no more shaking going on because after one generation of not being in the same room there were no more shakers isn't that it's just a sad it's a sad commentary isn't it but it's an extreme example of the kind of attitudes that can develop in a restricted kind of kind of hyper-spiritualized legalistic uh religious environment religious culture and it's just not good i mean you know uh you know Pastor Bob and his wife Sue, they, you know, they have five children, but we don't know how they ever made those children. It's a mystery to us. So so sex, so sex is so bad that we've got to keep God from noticing it. Listen, I was, uh, I was in seminary in grad school, and there was a man who was pastoring at the First Methodist Church in Wilmore, Kentucky. His name was David Siemens. And David Siemens was a great, great man of God. He was a missionary to India with his family. They were very devout, lovely people. He was he was a brilliant scholar, author, teacher, preacher. Uh, First Methodist Church in Wilmore, Kentucky. When we were in school there, when he would preach every weekend, that church would just fill up with students, seminary, and university professors and. And people from the the area and that place would just be packed out every Sunday morning, listening to David Siemens teach and preach. And he was he was just so admirable and remarkable. But he was he was from the Wesleyan holiness tradition, you know, as a man of God, you know, living straight, morally right. And occasionally Dr. Siemens would be asked to come to one of the seminary classes and guest lecture. And one day he was in one of my classes lecturing. And he was talking about human relationships. And then he dropped this line on the class. And I remember it like it was yesterday. And this is what he said, and I quote. He said, the more my wife and I pray, the wilder our sex becomes. (laughs) I mean, people were falling out on the floor. It was shocking to to hear the man of God say that say that he and his wife's sex is getting wilder. He didn't say more joyful. He didn't say more fulfilling. He didn't say, uh, say more enthusiastic. He said wilder. I can't even imagine what that means. What does he mean by that? But it was in that moment that my whole perspective began to change. I had a paradigm shift. I began to think, now, wait a minute. Maybe sex is good. Maybe sex is a gift maybe god has a better idea of sex than we've been promoting in the church for all these years and that began to get my attention subsequently i talked to talked to a friend of mine when he was a young pastor an older parishioner about 20 years older than him took him out for lunch one day and they were just chatting casually and then he said this older parishioner dropped this line on him he just almost out of the blue he said pastor my wife and i are having better sex now than ever well You know, good for you. But (laughs) what do you attribute this to, he asked. And the man said, it's because we are praying before we have sex. And the pastor said, well, tell me about that. And he said, we just kneel down next to our bed. I bless my wife. I say, God, make my wife free of anxiety, free of fear, free of worry. Help her, God, to be uninhibited and, and completely satisfied. And then she prays for me, and she prays, God, help my husband to be tender and loving and kind. Help him to be sensitive to me and expressive so that our experience today will be blessed and satisfying. He said, Pastor, it really works. Now, are you beginning to get it? Now, let me, let me tell you in a hypothetical situation. Some of you may be shocked or even offended by this, but, but hang on, just don't be offended, okay? Give me time to make my point. Imagine, just hypothetically, imagine that you are with your, with your spouse in your home, in your bedroom, the door is shut, the door's locked, you are in there and you are making love. And you are in the middle of making love, and you open your eyes and standing right next to your bed, right there, you have, you have a visual. Revelation of Jesus. Jesus is standing right there. And he's standing with his arms out over you like this. Now let me ask you a question. What is the first thought you have? What's the first impulse of your heart when you hear that? Oh God, I'm sorry. He makes me do this. (laughs) I do this, but I, I really don't like it. I mean, what happens to us in that? Let me remind you about a Bible verse that we quote oftentimes about God's presence in our lives. It's from Matthew chapter 18, verse 20. It's from Jesus. Jesus said, wherever two or more of you are gathered together, there I am in the midst of them. Where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. And we usually use it in the context of a worship service. You know, you get more than two people there. Jesus is here. Amen. Praise God. Well, let me just ask you in the context of sexual expression with your spouse. You can't get much more gathered together than that. (laughs) Right? There he is in the midst of them. Does that change your perspective? Listen. The Bible says that Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. They're not only naked before each other, think about it, they're naked before God, right? They're naked and unashamed. It's a very important distinction. The Bible says that Adam would walk with God in the cool of the evening. God would come to the Garden of Eden in the cool of the evening and walk with Adam. We have in the garden this great hymn of history in the garden that comes from this reference. And he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I am his own. This beautiful communion and intimacy with God. Adam is just walking along with God. And let I me. Mean, here's here's my question. What do you suppose they're talking about? How's the weather, Adam? Oh, it's perfect. Temperature, climate control is good. Oh, it's just right on. Couldn't be happier. <laughs> How about the food? Food is great. Love it, love it. How about that woman I made? Oh. Now you're talking. Now, now we have something to, to talk. So you think I did okay with her? Oh yeah, she's perfect. That is amazing. That girl. I really, you, you had a good. And how's your sex life, Adam? How's sex? Well, Lord, you should know. It's the best thing that has ever happened to me. Can you see him like doing cartwheels? <laughs> Happy. And thankful. man asked his little daughter he said are the angels watching over you honey she said yes he said are they with you all the time she said yes they watch over me all the time how about when you're in the shower and she paused and then she looked at her daddy, and she said well he's watching over me but he doesn't look (laughs) now watch this that's good theology that's good theology God is not shocked by our sexuality. He's glad. He's not unnerved by our enjoyment of it. He wants us to enjoy it, right? Not until sin and shame entered did Adam have to cover. Before that, he was covered by innocence, and he was covered by purity, and he was covered by the love of God for him. It was enough for him to feel secure in the presence of God, in the purity of his own conscience. And he didn't need covering. It was only after sin that Adam went, oh, I'm naked. i got to cover this up. But they were naked and unashamed. You remember Jesus Jesus found a man who was horribly demonized. And he was out of his mind. He was crazy. And he, was, he had torn his clothes off. And he was living in the tombs. And he was living like a wild beast. He was uncontrollable. And Jesus liberated this man from this demonic Possession, and the, the the Bible says in that text that when this man reemerges after Jesus sets him free, the Bible says that he was watch he was clothed and in his right mind. That God had covered him with His liberating power and grace. We learned that. That as we appropriate by faith the wonderful gift of life that's made possible through Jesus Christ's merits and his sacrificial death on our behalf, that we actually will, can put off our clothes of sinfulness and unrighteousness and separation from God and that we can actually be clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. and We become the righteousness of God in him. And that one day we will stand before God and the only way that we are able to be in his presence is because we'll be clothed not in our own goodness but in the righteousness of Jesus. And that we'll be clothed in pure white. And we'll all stand before God someday clothed in these robes. Jesus will clothe us with himself. And we begin to get a sense of what the difference is between being nude naked and unashamed let me put this statement on the screen for you we live in a crazy world that is obsessed with nudity but can't stand nakedness it's nude and semi-nude everywhere you look because this is the this is the new idol this is this is the new goddess this is the this is the new god we serve and sex is so good that we've got to keep god away from it and that's the world's message to us But in the church, we've gotten it wrong, too. We've said sex is so bad that we've got to keep God away from it. We've got to put up with it because, you know, it's a necessary evil, but we we can't enjoy this. But God comes along and says, no, no, wait. I made it for your enjoyment. And in the right context, this is what I've made for you, for fulfillment that can last you a lifetime. Hmm. So what do men and women want in sex? You know, beyond the physical gratification. Here's what men and women want. For women, it's this. Men, listen to this carefully. This will help you. Women want a sense of unique specialness. Uniquely desirable. You're aroused by her uniquely, specifically. Uh, There's a sense of beauty of the physical and spiritual that's real in her life, and I am attracted to you. I'm interested sexually in you and you alone. That's what women need to feel. They need to feel that security. In the Old Testament book of Song of Solomon, some of you haven't read Song of Solomon for a while, maybe ever. But Song of Solomon is from Solomon. It's the song of songs, the love song of all times. And it is a series of little choruses and lyrics, poetry that reminds us of the love we have for the other and all this metaphor and, and... analogy is made and so here's your assignment as couples when you go home this week read the song of solomon to the other just read it to each other you might want to find a paraphrase you know like the message or something like that because the message is kind of you know old-timey asian language you know so when your eyes are like pomegranates you know that doesn't translate your your teeth are like a row of soldiers shoulder to shoulder That, that may not may not work <clears throat> but one of, the, one of the phrases is that just outside, just outside of your wedding chamber are guards posted with their swords drawn. Now, what's the implication there? The implication there is that, is that there's the need for privacy. There's the need for security. That, that in God's perfect ideal, that you're in your bedroom chamber, your wedding chamber, and you are there and you're alone with your spouse, and the, and the door is guarded. No one's going to intrude. No one's going to interrupt. This is really important for women. You know, if you have young children in your home, and you're in your bedroom, and the door's closed, and the kids are kind of out there somewhere, uh, and the kid, one of the little ones, comes by and bangs on the door, who's the first one to jump? It's always the woman. It's always the woman who jumps. And it's because she needs the security. She needs to feel the privacy. The seclusion of it. For the man, <laughs> uh, frankly, he doesn't care. He wonders, he wonders why she jumped. And in fact, uh, at a certain point in the process, a man is oblivious to just about everything else going on. Virtually everything else. So if the child bangs on the door, and she, go, she disengages and jumps up and says, who's at the door? And he goes, door? We have a door? There's a door? There's a house? What do you mean? So one of the kids are at the, at the door. Kids, children, we have children? What's, what's happened here? I don't know. At a certain point, at a certain point, listen, you could land a 747 in the bedroom and the husband would not know it. He wouldn't, wouldn't notice. Just, just saying. So it's different. So a woman wants to feel loved more than she wants to feel desired physically. She wants to feel loved. She wants to be uh, spoken to and and caressed, and stroked. She wants to know that she is uniquely special. For the man, sexual, sexual expression is a whole different a different thing. It's a different need. Uh, with a man, sex is the confirmation of his maleness. It's the affirmation of his personhood as a man. It, it's, it's central to who he is and how he, how he feels about himself and how he imagines the world to be for the woman sex is an affirmation of her unique personhood her specialness and uniqueness as a person so those are different agendas Uh, to illustrate this listen to the words that we use for a man we can say he's impotent but he's never frigid for a woman on the other hand uh, she can be frigid but she's never impotent what's the greatest fear that a man has The greatest fear that a man has is that he won't be able to perform. That's a big deal because it's central to his self-awareness as a man. That's why millions of these little blue pills get sold, because it's a big deal. The the questions that are asked after the sexual activity are illustrative as well. The woman will ask, do you love me? Will you stay and caress me? Will Will you hold me? Will you talk to me? The man, on the other hand, he asked these questions. How was it? How'd I do? Was that good? Did you like that? And that's important for him. And ladies, it's important for you to help him with that. You can coach him along. And it's also very important to, to affirm and appreciate at the end. Very important. I would recommend such things as just jump out of the bed. Standing ovation would be... <laughs> A nice way to express your appreciation. He will hear that. (laughs) Standing at attention, a salute. That see that would speak volumes to him. So sex should serve to meet one another's needs. Again, she needs to feel beautiful, unique, wonderful, loved, adored. Therefore. Obscene language or coarseness in sex. That's not going to be helpful. Uh, You should give yourself to her in tenderness and gentleness and holiness. It's not about the ventilation of your pent-up energy. Not about that. It's the expression of tender love. Again, he needs to feel and to hear your affirmation of his performance. You're the only reason. You're the only reason I'm interested in sex tonight. It's not just because... I want to have sex, but it's because I get to have sex with you. By the way, all this research has been done for decades and decades. And this may come as a surprise to some of you. It doesn't surprise me at all. But but the research for decades continues to demonstrate this truth, that the the people who have the most frequent sex and the most satisfying sex are people who are married. I don't know if that comes as a surprise. You don't hear this in our sex-crazed world. No one wants to hear it because that implies the intrusion of God and some kind of boundaries. You mean that sex is restricted to a man and a woman in marriage, in a marriage covenant? But all the research forever affirms the fact that a man and a woman in a mutually exclusive monogamous relationship have the most frequent sex and the best sex of anyone in the world. (laughs) there you go. There you go. And pride, though, can keep us from, from entering into this. Um, let me give you this illustration. I hope it's not too much. Uh, a pastor received a call from a woman 60 years old in his church, and she came came into the office, and she expressed real concern about her husband. Now, you should know that this woman was raised in a very conservative culture, religious culture. She comes from that kind of background, and and she was, you know, she was very concerned about the request that her husband was making of her uh, sexually. And, and he, the, the pastor heard from her that, that she was imagining her husband becoming perverted and out of balance and unhealthy. And so the pastor's imagination began to run wild. Well, what's, you know, finally he said, well, what is he asking you to do? And she put her head down and shook her head and she said, he wants He wants me to take a shower with him. And the pastor reported that that didn't seem extreme to him. And so he asked her, why do you feel that that is so inappropriate? And he said at this point the woman burst into tears and she composed herself a little bit and then she held her hands like this and she said, Look at me. And this is a 60-year-old woman who would had three kids, and she looks different now than she did when she was 19 and a bride. And so she's self-conscious about her body, shape, and the condition it's in. And so for her to imagine being lovable or attractive or desirable, she can't comprehend it. And with the conservative culture in which she's been raised on top of all of it, this just seems impossible to her. But the pastor was wise. And the pastor said to her, don't you understand that your husband is paying you a wonderful compliment? He's saying to you, look, you are my wife. You are the woman that I have chosen to to live with all of my days. And what he's saying by inviting you into the shower with him is, I don't see you as a 60-year-old woman. I see you as 19. You're my bride. You're the the wife of my youth. I'm with you all the way to the end. She composed herself and accepted that and understood probably it was true. And so she looked at her pastor and said, so what should I do? (laughs) Pastor said, go home, get naked, get in a shower. (laughs) <laughs> that's what you do sometimes uh pride happens in another form resentment bitterness unforgiveness you've had a spat you've been in conflict you should know that when she thinks about making up from a from a squabble that You do that by kissing and making up. You kiss and hug and caress, and that's how you make up. He thinks make love and make up. That's hard for her to comprehend, but that's that's the way order is restored in a man's mind. This is the psychology of a man. Order is maintained and order is restored through the act of having sex. It's the way a man's brain works. Someone did some research on this. <laughs> and, and they actually discovered the days of the week that men uh, prefer to have sex. And as it turns out, the days of the week are the ones that start with the letter T. So you have Tuesday, you have Thursday, you have today, you have tomorrow, you have tatter day and tunday. And that, that's how you narrow it down. so for men sex is reaffirmation that the world is going to be okay there's still hope for for the woman sex is the first thing to go so the man who comes home and reaches for his wife and she pulls away and says what is the matter with you are you crazy you some kind of pervert you want to have sex you just married you just buried your aunt mabel today and and our teenage son is in the hospital recovering from an accident and you just lost your job, and you want to have sex? Is that all you can think about? What is the matter with you? And the man says, I don't know what's the matter with me. All I know is that's all I can think about. Because for the man, it restores order, and it's important to him. For the woman, she needs to know she's safe and uniquely special, loved, and cared for. So, if there's mutuality here and mutual submission and mutual giving, it just means, buddy, listen, sometimes you got to slow down. Bubba, you need to slow your roll. Maybe it's not going to happen tonight, not going to happen today. So just slow down, be patient, and wait. For, for you women, listen, sometimes uh, you may actually have a headache. I'm sorry, I have a headache, a splitting headache. No, a headache. For you, it may be, in those circumstances, you need to take two aspirin, get on in there. That's how you can best give and submit and care. So it's about giving together in love, ministering to one another in a mutually beneficial way, celebrating the wonderful gift that sex is to us as people in the context of marriage and the wonderful design that God has given us so that this expression, very important expression of our intimacy and our one flesh, become something that can last us a lifetime. And that's God's original design and intent. Hope you can get it. Let's pray for just a moment. Lord, we thank you for this powerful illustration of the gift of sex to us found in the earliest pages of the Bible. Lord, we pray then that you would help us, both men and women, to become more and more sensitive to the other and aware of the unique blessing that sexuality is to our marriage. So help us, we pray. Help us to live honorably and to, and to not only honor you and our spouse, but to bless this gift, which is so wonderfully given and so wonderfully now experienced and received. We pray in Jesus' name. Everyone said amen. All right, would you stand with us as we sing?